please stand as Dan Wanshara comes and reads 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17. Listen as I read. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name is Eric Freeman. I serve here at Sojourn as one of the two church planting residents, along with uh, Justin Sluter, who you often see uh, leading worship up here. He's uh, out, out west visiting family this week. Um, a lot of you know this. A lot of you have heard updates along the way. But uh, the reason why Justin and I are here, uh, for me, this is my second stint back at Sojourn. This is where I got my start in ministry. But the reason why we're here is we're planting a church in Cadillac, just uh, about 50 minutes south of here. Um, and we're set to launch this fall, probably around November. And uh, you are our mother church. Uh, you are ascending church. You are uh, the ones that surrounding us with support, surrounding us with your prayers uh, to help make this thing happen. And I know that a lot of you have, um, have come to us recently just curious, wanting to know what the latest update is. And I don't want to take up too much time, but I just want to share a couple things that have happened over the last two months that have been really, really exciting. Um, about two months ago, we just kind of went public with our information. We put out a website, we printed a bunch of booklets, uh, we uh, sent the message out on Facebook and stuff like that. And then Justin and I decided, you know what, let's just sit back and see what happens. Let's see what God will do with this. And uh, we, we just had a feeling uh, when we started to get the idea for this church plant that God was already calling a lot of people to something like this that he was turning people's hearts, uh, that there would be a church planted in Cadillac that had a heart for the lost. And uh, over the last couple of months, God has been working in incredible ways. Um, we, I, I made a list of some people that we knew that I would love to see as part of our core team of members to help us get it started. And we didn't call any of them. We just prayed for them and prayed that God would call them if this was their calling. And every single one on my list has called us. Um, yeah, uh, we're, hoping, we're hoping to have about 30, 40 people to help us get this thing started. We've got 17 already, which is fantastic, just in two months. Um, we're hoping to raise $90,000, $100,000 in external support. We've got about 55, 60,000 raised in two months, which is incredible. Um, I share these things because God, God is working in Cadillac. And it's, it's just been amazing to, to be a spectator. Yes, I'm on the front lines of it, but really I feel like a spectator to what God is doing. This is his mission. He is the missionary, and we follow him in this mission. So we really appreciate your prayers for these things. Um, continue to pray for us. If you ever have questions about what the Refuge Church is all about and how you can help us out, I'd love to talk with you. Um, and uh, yeah, appreciate your prayers. Let's uh, pray as we uh, turn our attention to God's word. God, we thank you. You are living and active. You are working. May your word be living and active in us now. Over these next moments, 
May your spirit transform us into the image of your son, Jesus. And may that love that you have given us so freely radiate out from us so that the world may know that there is a God, that he has paid the price for our sins, and that he offers it to them freely. Amen. What happened to you? What happened to you? That was the question a friend of mine asked me after I spent a summer in between college semesters uh, backpacking and portaging in the wilderness of northern Ontario for two and a half months. I came back and I lost 20 pounds, maybe a little more. My skin was burnt orange from just being exposed in the sun all day long. Uh, My arms and legs had literal scars over them from the mosquitoes and black flies. I still have some of those scars to this day. Uh, No amount of bug spray was enough. Um, I I looked beaten up. I looked beaten up. Uh, That's what my friends saw on the outside. But on the inside, I came back feeling fantastic. That, That summer changed me. It made me a more resilient person. It made me a more confident person. And those changes soon became noticeable to my friend as he spent more time with me. And some of the things that we experience uh, make these tangible, lasting differences in the way that we appear to others. Um, Kids, after summer break, they come back for their first day of school six inches taller than they used to be, wearing a brand new wardrobe and showing off the souvenir from that vacation they took. Or maybe it's it's the young woman who brings her boyfriend home to, to meet her parents during the holidays. You can kind of see that twinkle in her eye, and you know something, oh, something happened. Something happened there. Something's changed. I don't know what. I hope it's good. Or maybe it's, it's the mountaintop experience or the achievement of a lifetime or meeting somebody new or losing an old friend or surviving a traumatic experience. All of us go through these life experiences that make this impact on the way that we live from that moment on. And people can see that change in you. That's the sort of change we're talking about this morning. Right now, as you know, we're in a sermon series that we're calling The Gospel Changes Everything, and and we really believe that. Our belief that Jesus has died for our sins, that he rose from the grave to promise us new life, it's it's not something that we think is just information to be stuck in our heads. We our desires that, that would sink down into our hearts, that it would saturate our entire being and, and change the way that we live, change the way that we look at the world. And so we ask, if the gospel changes everything, what did it change in us? What does the gospel change in us? What is the evidence of our transformation? What can I see that tells me you're not the same person that you used to be? In other words, what are you a witness to? What are you a witness to? That word witness, it's one of the New Testament's favorite words for a believer of Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples that uh, they're to bear witness about the things that they've seen and heard him do. Um, the, The early church in Acts described themselves as witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And the apostle Paul talks about how His life is a testimony and a witness to the transformation of Christ in him through the Holy Spirit. What are you a witness to? And that's the question 
that's circulating around the background here, the backdrop of this letter to the Corinthian church about Paul and his ministry. And in the two letters that we have from Paul to the Corinthian church, it's apparent that the Corinthians are looking at Paul like my friends looked at me after I came back that summer. Paul looks a little beaten up. He has suffered a lot. He's suffered a lot of hardships. He's suffered a lot of trials by the appearance of things. It looks like Paul is experiencing quite a lot of suffering and defeat for a preacher who's talking about the victory that we have in Christ. And Paul's opponents are saying as much. They're pointing that out. Apparently, in in Corinth at this time, Paul had some opponents, some traveling preachers and evangelists who were trying to discredit Paul and his message, and they accused him of being weak. They pointed to his losses and his sufferings as signs that uh, God wasn't really working through him, that he couldn't possibly be with him if he was suffering this much. They even pointed out to the fact, uh, you might have caught it in the passage, uh, the peddler, we're not mere peddlers of the gospel. Paul is addressing that his opponents are accusing him of not having a gospel message that's valuable because if it was valuable, you would charge for it. You would ask for a fee for your sermons. If it's that valuable, it must cost something. And in the verses that immediately precede the ones that we just read, Paul gives a quick update on how things are going, and guess what? More hardship. His travel plans, his missionary plans were once again disrupted, and to, to go on top of it all, his, his, his apprentice, Titus, has gone missing, and it's just tearing him up inside. Paul, Paul, what's the deal? I thought you said this gospel changes everything. How can somebody who's going through so much hardship be a witness to the power of Jesus? The Corinthian church was confused. Felt like they were hearing two different sides preach two completely different gospel messages. And you know, I I wouldn't blame you at all if, if you sometimes find yourself in a similar place of confusion. The capital C church not just this local church, but all of us, the capital C church is is living through some pretty divisive times right now, aren't we? Especially in this country. It seems like everywhere you look, you're getting a different message. You're getting a different message about what Christianity is or is not, as if we're all witnesses to different truths. False teaching, tribalism, identity politics are being championed under the banner of Christianity. People who claim to be followers of Jesus but actually look a whole lot more like they are first and foremost followers of their own ideologies. The gospel, you know, we're just going to have to squeeze it in there where it's convenient. That's what it looks like sometimes. Just look at the, the confusion that's come about recently. Look at all the places and situations that we've seen Christian flags waved just as a symbol. Look at the places and situations where the Bible has been ripped out of its context to support a completely different agenda. What do our agendas, what do our priorities say that we believe in? Look at me. Look at my life. What does the evidence say about what my gospel is, what I claim to be a witness to? Let me tell you about a a friend of mine named, uh, I'm going to call her Jane. Um, she's real. She's a real friend, but that's not her real name. 
Um, <clears throat> Jane grew up around Christianity. Uh, the, the town she lives in is mostly Christian. She, uh, is, it's just around her. It's part of the culture. But she's never been to church herself. She doesn't really have any close friends who are Christians. And we've um, developed a good friendship over the last years. I'm, I'm kind of the only dedicated Christian that she knows in, in her life. And uh, through that friendship, we've developed this weird kind of trust where, like, we can just, she, she knows she has permission to ask me any question about Christianity or the church, no matter how embarrassing it might be, no matter how off the wall it might be. And so once in a while, she'll bring up a question um, to me about Christianity. She just wants some answers. Some of her questions, they're pretty innocent. Um, I think the first question that she asked me was, um, what is happening in prayer? What do you believe is happening in prayer? Like that, so, so we're like starting from ground zero. She really doesn't have much of a framework for what we believe. <clears throat> Other times, um, she has some more interesting questions, uh, pretty shocking and risque at times, but it's all good because uh, she's just genuinely curious. What do Christians believe about this issue or that issue? Uh, they, she wants to know what is the true message that y'all believe in? But a while back, she was telling me um, about the Christians in her hometown. And, and from her interpretation of the evidence of their lives, um, she, she wanted to just pitch to me what she thought the Christian gospel was based on the, the evidence of their lives. And she said that the gospel of Jesus is basically a, a self-help manual to make us better people. She didn't hear that in a sermon. She didn't read it in a book, she came to that conclusion by watching the way that these Christians live and the way that they interact with her. And so uh, on one hand, Jane admires that sort of dedication to become better human beings. That's something that she really admires about Christians. But <clears throat> on the other hand, she was a little put off by just how self-centered that was, that it seems to be all about me, my self-help, my growth, my achievement, me climbing that spiritual ladder. The Christians that she interacts with seem to believe that the gospel is to make themselves better, but it's not really for her because nobody's ever reached out to her. And after a long conversation about it, you know, I, I did what anyone would do in that situation uh, who doesn't know what to say. I just quote Tim Keller. <laughs> and, and so uh, I, I told her, no, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared to believe yet we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared to hope. We say that a lot around here, don't we? And Jane paused for a little while and then said, that's the most beautiful thing I have ever heard. Why have I never seen this? Not why has no one ever said this to me, but why have I never seen this? My friend Jane has every right to feel confused. Corinthian church has every right to feel confused too because Paul's opponents are challenging the message of the gospel that Paul first brought to them. They're, they're giving the Corinthians this, this mixed message about what the gospel supposedly says and they're pointing accusing fingers at Paul and question how a man as beaten and broken and battered as him could possibly be a reliable witness to the power of Jesus. And so this in part is why Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians. 
He wants to make a defense for his ministry to them, for his gospel message that he preached to them. And so um, in the verses that just come before this, when he updates them about his recent hardships and about the Titus situation, he knows what their next question is going to be. He anticipates it. He knows what their next doubt's going to be, and he immediately answers them. And he says, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Uh, those, those verses, um, don't know if you've noticed, they, they've been kind of made a resurgence of popularity in like Christian blogosphere. Uh, you, you'll, you'll read blog articles titled, um, Do You Smell Like Jesus? Um, did you put on your Jesus deodorant today? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not making those up. You can Google them. Uh, they're, they're interesting, <laughs> but the message that's in those articles, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a good one. It's a good one. When people look at us, they should see a reflection of Jesus. We should smell like Jesus. That's a great message, but that's not quite what Paul means in these verses. That's not quite what he's talking about. Yes, our lives are to be witnesses and a testament to Jesus, but maybe not in that kind of cutesy way that we might first assume. If you notice, Paul uses two different analogies to make his case. Um, one analogy, one image is for the Gentile audience, and the other uh, image is for his Jewish audience. The first image is of a Roman triumphal procession. Um, this was kind of like a festival. It, it was a victory march through the city after a successful military campaign to celebrate the glories of the military commanders and the army. And uh, you would often see at the front lines of this parade, you would often see two things. First, you would see the general or the hero of the battle. They would be, you know, holding the baton and, and leading the march. And, and the second thing that you would see is the important leaders and warriors from the enemy that they captured alive. And they would march them out in the front to show what a great victory they had over them, and they would march them, usually, to their execution at the end of the parade. And that's not a pretty picture, is it? Uh, the, the second image, we'll get back to that, the second image that Paul gives us is for his Jewish readers, and, and it's this aroma of a burnt sacrifice that is pleasing to God. If you read the book of Leviticus, you should read the book of Leviticus. It's more fun than you think. Uh, it's, it's this book in the Old Testament that gives the, sacrifi the sacrificial law system for uh, Old Testament Israel to follow. And it's said repeatedly over and over again in Leviticus that the smell that arose, the aroma that arose from the burnt sacrifice was pleasing to God. It was accepted by God. So we have two images. A victory parade led by heroes and defeated prisoners of war, and then a pleasant aroma of sacrifice. Now, I want you to think, what do those two images have in common? The victory parade and the sacrifice. What do they have in common? Death. Death. They both have death in common. And who does Paul say is dying? Look at verse 14 and 15 again. Christ always leads who? Us. Us in triumphal procession. And we 
are the aroma of the sacrifice. Christ is leading Paul and us to follow him into his death. You see why it's not such an easy thing to just say, like, look like Jesus, smell like Jesus. It's, it's a little darker than that. Let's explore this for a little bit. Paul is telling us that we are not leading the victory parade. We are not the hero. No, Paul is telling us that a life committed to following Jesus means that he leads us to death, to self-denial, to sacrifice, as our Savior did. How's that sitting with you? How you doing? just want to pause for a moment and acknowledge that the feelings you're probably feeling are, are maybe not what you were expecting halfway through a sermon right now. You were expecting it to maybe be a little more hopeful. Come on, Paul, tell us about something happy. We like to talk about the new life that we have in Christ. We like to talk about the promise that there will one day be no more pain or suffering or mourning. But this, upon, the, <laughs> upon first hearing this sort of message, I just wouldn't blame you for questioning in the moment, wait, is this the same gospel that Jesus taught us? Is Paul preaching the same thing? See, Paul's opponents couldn't believe it. The Corinthian church, they were wrestling with this too. It sounds weak. It sounds like defeat, not victory. And it's okay if you feel that way right now. Just hang with me for a little bit. It's going to make sense. You See, the idea of Christ leading us to death that's not something new. This isn't some morbid new idea that Paul just created on his own. It's actually the same gospel message that Jesus himself gave us when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever would save his life, will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, all that Paul is doing here is he is extending the exact same invitation that Jesus gave us earlier to come and die. And of all people, of all people, Paul would know what that means. He would know what it looks like. I have to imagine that as he's writing this letter, Paul has in the back of his mind the, the story, his conversion story, replaying back in his head because Paul was invited to come and die. And he did. Paul's old self, the Paul that was once an enemy to Jesus, the Paul that once persecuted the church, he died, he was put to death, and Jesus made him alive to a new and better way. Paul, he, he would go on and write numerous letters to different people and churches, and in nearly all of them, he talks at length about how our old self <clears throat> was crucified with Christ, how the old man has passed away, how in Christ, a new man now lives. He talks at length about how we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. For Paul, to follow Jesus means that he dies every day. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. To follow Christ means that he dies every day to himself. The Christian witness, the gospel witness then, is the way of dying to self. It's the way of sacrifice. It's the way 
of the cross. And when we let the good news that the old has died, the new has come, when we let that good news saturate every part of us, every sphere of our lives, that's when people start to pay attention. That's when it's worthy of attention. It can't be ignored when people are radically changed in that way, when they die to self every day. That's when they start to smell the aroma of Christ. Now, to Paul's opponents and to maybe even some of us, uh, that aroma doesn't smell so sweet. Uh, Maybe this is not the gospel message that we came here today to hear. The prospect that following Jesus could lead to a life where our earthly desires are not fulfilled, that doesn't sound like good news to us most days. So listen, if you want a gospel message, if you want a gospel message that promises earthly success, prosperity, comfort, or even just plain happiness, I'm sure you can find it somewhere. You're going to hear it from someone, but you won't find Jesus there. That's not the promises that he gave us. No, the, the, the gospel of Jesus is offensive sometimes. The gospel of Jesus is offensive. That's what Paul is getting at. It gives off this stench of death to some people. The invitation to come and die to self runs completely counter to the way that we want to live our lives. We want to be our own kings. We want to live by our own rules and priorities. We we are so hell-bent on having our wants and preferences fulfilled. And to lay all of that aside, many of us, we wouldn't even know where to begin, would we? I think it was Pastor Matt who said a few months ago, maybe it was somebody else, that the good news sounds like bad news at first. Have we said that here? The good news sounds like bad news at first. The good news of Jesus sounds like bad news at first because it begins with a confrontation. A confrontation of our condition, of who we are and what our real needs are. It tells us that we're not okay that we pretend to be. It tells us that we are lost and broken, though we think we're fine. It tells us that each of us has strayed so far from the life that God has intended us to live. But we're saying, but I tried so hard. You know, it's not always easy for us to admit that. Because maybe we think we're doing all right. Maybe we think that we're getting what we want out of life. Uh, but, But while there may be some for whom the gospel is a stench of death, there are others who find it to be this fragrant aroma of life. This invitation to come and die, weirdly enough, is so refreshing. To put the old self to death by nailing it to the cross of Christ, this is a life-giving message to the people who know they're already dead. It's a breath of fresh air because it confirms what we've suspected all along. For those who have discovered, whether through trial and error, through loss or through hardship or whatever else, that the pursuits of this life all fall short. For those who know that they're already dead, the call to come and die, it promises new life at the end. Paul says in verse 16, who is sufficient in these things? Who is competent? Who is capable of being this sort of sacrificial witness? The sort of witness who is willing to be a living sacrifice for the sake of making Jesus and his gospel known? Who is sufficient? 
Now, um, if you're like me and you've been around good, some good gospel-centered preaching for a little while, I, I think you have your answer ready. You're ready to shoot it out. Uh, you're ready to say, not me. I'm not sufficient. It's definitely not me. And, you know, those instincts come from a good place. We've learned that we are wholly dependent on the grace of God, that he lived the life that we couldn't live, he died the death that we should have died, and all that stuff. He, he, uh, all, who is sufficient? Who is sufficient? We, we want to say, it can't be me. I've learned by now that I can't do it. But according to Paul, that's only part true. Now, before you kick me out as a heretic, just stay with me. Let's keep going. Skip down to verse, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Good, all right? I'm not a heretic right there. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Paul just said something with a type of confidence that a lot of us might not ever feel like we're allowed to say. That we are sufficient. Because God has made me, 100%. Let's never forget that. We lose that, we lose the whole point. But God has made us sufficient to be this type of witness. In Christ, this sort of sacrificial witness is possible. What happened to Paul? Something has happened to Paul He looks like a beaten man, but there's this fire in him that will not die. There's this confidence and perseverance through suffering and hardship. His life is a testimony of self-sacrifice. And it's as if he marches on with the very endurance of God himself. Out of Paul's testimony, out of his witness, the evidence of his life, there's some sufficiency in there from God. So what happened to Paul? He died. Paul died, not physically, not yet. But Paul experienced another kind of death. That that sort of death that happens when someone places their faith in Jesus and follows after him because on that cross as Jesus died, something wonderful and mysterious happened. Our sins, our failures were put to death with Jesus, nailed on that cross. All of our earthly desires, all of our earthly aspirations were laid and buried in the grave with Jesus, never to come out again. And with Christ and his resurrection, a new man has risen. A new man, now with the Spirit of God living in us and transforming us day by day. You see, Jesus' call to come and die is followed with this invitation that in him we'll find a new life, a better way than the life that we have so long clung to. And this life is much like his, a life of self-sacrifice. Remember the good news of Jesus. He said that he has overcome the world. He now reigns sovereign over all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and that is our confidence. That is what makes us to be the sufficient ministers of his gospel because he now equips us and sends us out with that authority as his witnesses, fully sufficient in his power to do exactly what he has sent us out to do. So let's get this cause and effect thing straight. God and only God will make us sufficient witnesses. 
But if you really believe that God is capable, don't shortchange yourself. Don't shortchange the work that he's done in you. He has made you sufficient to be the sort of witnesses that the gospel is calling you to be. And so with Paul, we can truly say that by the grace of God, I have been made sufficient for the task that he calls me to. If we stand in the power of Jesus, we have every right to be confident witnesses of his gospel. And so if, if you're a follower of Jesus, if, if that's where your faith is at right now, the invitation is to come and die. Come and die to self, to carry your cross, to follow after our Savior, ready at every point in every sphere of life to lay your life down as he did, as a sacrifice for the sake of making his salvation known to our neighborhoods, to our schools, to our places of work, and to the very ends of the earth. I just want you to imagine, what if the church always lived like this? What if we always were witnesses to the sacrificial death of Christ that has won us salvation? What if people looked at us and they saw that in us by the way that we live? What sort of effect would that have? They would look at us and wonder what happened here. So kind of in a roundabout way, we do end up smelling like Jesus a little bit. We do end up reflecting Jesus and his gospel to the world through what we say and do. But what, according to, the Paul, according to Paul, are we specifically reflecting as our witness? The sacrifice of Jesus. That is all important. His sacrificial love that led him to lay even his own life aside for the sake of seeking and saving the lost. Our fragrance, our aroma is to wake up a hopeless world and call it to follow us and to follow Jesus to the cross, to die, and then find new life in him. You know, a, a witness to the sacrifice of Jesus then is, um, is a humble witness. Because we know that it's only because of what God has done that has made us sufficient. We don't lord our beliefs over other people's heads, making them feel stupid or guilty. Uh, we don't declare that we're right and you're wrong. That's not our goal, no. A sacrificial witness is compassionate to share the good news that we have uh, because we know that apart from the grace of Jesus, it's we who are wrong. It's we who are condemned. The gift of grace frees us from thinking that somehow we're special, that we're better than everyone else that we are superior in judgment or character. A witness to the sacrificial love of Jesus it shares the good news with others with, from the generosity of their own heart out of love, not guilt, not condemnation. It's, it's not about fulfilling some kind of arbitrary standards of how many doors did you knock on this week? How many people did you go through a four-step gospel track with this week? No, it's, it's not to check something off the to-do list. It's out of a sincere love, knowing how much Jesus has loved you, you want to extend that sacrificial love to them. Witness to the sacrifice of Jesus is freed from feeling hurt or offended by the ridicule of others, because we've already been told the worst possible news about who we are, that we were dead, that we're dead in our sins. That's as bad as it gets. That's the worst news that you could possibly hear. And if that has good news at the end, you don't need to be offended by anything else that anyone says. Now we've received the best possible news that we're perfectly loved and accepted in Christ, so no other words should shake us. 
A witness to the sacrifice of Jesus is patient because they know that it's Jesus who is patient and kind to them. It was the kindness of God that has led us to repentance, and we want to reflect that kindness to them. And like Christ, we empty, we pour out our whole lives in order to serve the needs of those around us. We orient our purposes, we orient our life and our aspirations around his kingdom, not our own. Now, I could go on, but the point is this. The true gospel, the true gospel that Paul is preaching about here, the true gospel of Jesus is most beautifully communicated when our lives become a display of the sacrifice of Jesus. When we come and die, when we die to self, when we lay our lives down for the sake of others, you know, imagine the effect that that would have on your family on your friends, on all your networks of relationships. Imagine the effect that would have when they look at you and see that something has changed here. It would compel them to ask, what happened? What happened to you? You seem like a new person. What happened to you? This, this, my friends, is the window in which Jesus is clearly communicated. This is our window to make the gospel clear because of the trans, uh, tangible transformation that he's worked in us. Such is the confidence that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, make us new. As I, as I read this passage and even listen to my own words, I recognize that. The sacrificial life sounds good. I know it's true. But I don't have it within me to get there. But in you, we are sufficient. In you, we can be transformed into the witnesses that are worthy of your kingdom. So Lord Jesus, hear our prayer and make us new for the sake of your name being spread to the ends of the earth. Amen.